Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Rod Reed to our show. Dr. Reed is the former chancellor at Indiana Wesleyan University, Marion, in Marion, Indiana. Hi, Rod. I'm excited to have you on our podcast today. Thanks, Dave. I'm glad to be here. So so tell me about Indiana Wesleyan University and why students select the institution. Yeah, so the university uh, was founded in 1920, so it's a little over 100 years old. Uh, it is part of the Wesleyan Church, which is a denomination in uh, the United States and actually all around the world. And so students come to the university for a variety of reasons. Um, there are some flagship programs, uh, the nursing program. We have about 500 nursing students, uh, always one of the top rated uh, programs in the state of Indiana, uh, great business programs, social work, uh, preparation for Christian ministry. Um, and that is one of the main reasons students come to the university. Uh, the Christian faith uh, is at the heart of everything we do. Uh, from academics to student life to athletics. And, and so students know that they're coming to a place where faith is important. And, and they, as they're becoming uh, adults, having a place where they can wrestle through what their personal spiritual life uh, means with regard to their vocation, their studies, uh, politics, society, whatever the issues are, uh, we try to shape the whole person uh, to help them be prepared for a life of impact. Well, what, what was some of the, uh, oh gosh, I always hate to ask this, but you know, because you're having <laughs> to pick one program over another, but what 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 are you best known for? Uh, probably nursing would be uh, the program that is uh, most recognized of the 2000 and some uh, undergraduate students, 500 of those are in the nursing program. Uh, it's been in the last four years, it's ranked anywhere from number one to number four in the state of Indiana for uh, nursing programs. And we just have some outstanding faculty and staff and leaders in that area. Yeah. Well, what's, what's uh, the proudest moment you had there? Uh, that's uh, for me, it's all about the mission. And so we, uh, in, we started a, a new focus on our mission two weeks before COVID hit. And so uh, we're doing strategic planning and, and we decided we weren't going to put that off because of COVID. And so we kept that going and we, uh, we were working on, of course, enrollment and budgets and all those kinds of things, but to see people uh, be motivated and excited about the academic and spiritual mission of the university and have that influence the way we recruit faculty and recruit students and actually grow uh, in our commitment to that during some really challenging circumstances was very satisfying. Mm, well, that's good. Well, before we go on, I, I'd like to know what you're doing now. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I finished my time at the university at the end of December and uh, in the middle of January, started a new job with an organization called the CEO Forum. Uh, this is an organization that works with 
uh, CEOs of large corporations who are Christians, who are wanting to uh, grow both personally, but in the way they lead their organizations. And so I'm the vice president for the Southeast region of the United States, uh, working with uh, leaders uh, throughout that throughout that area. Oh my goodness, that sounds really exciting. It is. It is. I'm only a few weeks in, but just really <laughs> enjoying it. Well, that's good. Well, what do you think uh, are going to be the major challenges that universities will face over the next five years? Yeah. So how long do we have for this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, I mean, the easiest one to point out that everybody has been talking about is demographics and the demographic cliff and you know, being located in the upper Midwest where the population of college going high school students is declining, that's on everyone's mind. Um, however, I'm not sure it's the biggest challenge. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges these days is the perceived value of a college education. And especially when we're in an inflationary environment, uh, dollars don't go as far as they used to. And just the narrative of the value of higher education has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Um, 10 years ago, I think the stats are somewhere around 70 plus percent of parents and high school students believed a high school education was, or a college education was important for a high school graduate. Within the last two years, that's uh, in the 40s, uh, 40%. What's your opinion on why you think it changed? Uh, I think there's a variety of things. One is um, there's a per perception, and this has come through different layers of government um, and just in the media that uh, the cost of college education has risen so much more than uh, real income. When you look at the discount rate, that's not actually true, but when you look at the sticker price, um, you can understand why people get there. Uh, two, uh, students can start out in jobs without much education that pay and start making money right away rather than forestalling that for four years. And I think three, uh, there's been an appropriate uh, re-emphasis on the honorable work and value of more technical careers where people realize I don't have to have a college education to have meaningful work that makes a difference. And so I think that kind of the confluence of all those things um, makes makes college not as perceived or perceived as not as important as in the past. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it's really shocking, just like in 10 years, how that has changed, especially, you know, I, I left as a dean. Um, and and I remember those last few conversations I had with parents. And it's just like, what the heck? All of a sudden, you just started seeing a shift of, you know, and it really was return on investment. And, and there's these mm -hmm. other options. And Amazon might build a, a program that my student, my kid can go to and it's like oh my gosh i mean but Absolutely. there's this wonderful feeling at the university that people just don't see because they're they're not there they don't realize how much that helps their their kid become right. overall better yep. citizens it's just not right. all about Absolutely. skills exactly and that's that is i think one area in which universities have not done a good job you know using the term value proposition um mm -hmm. but we have allowed um the narrative that a higher education is a commodity and the objective is to get the commodity at the lowest price, not realizing that it is a life-shaping experience for those who come to a campus. 
Yeah, that's yeah. that's really a good point. Um, well, what do you think the opportunities might look like for higher ed? Yeah, I think, I mean, all these things are cyclical, right? So um, there, just as there's been a pendulum swing away from higher education, I think people will start to realize uh, with a dramatically changing job market that um, your education is more important for your second, third, fourth, and fifth jobs than it is for your first job. And if our colleges and universities are preparing people for a lifetime of work with careers that don't exist right now, uh, we have the opportunity to help parents and students understand the needs that their kids are going to have. And it's not primarily about their first job. It's about their job when they're 30 and 40 and 50. That's really a great point. That's really a great point, right? Um, well, let's go back to you a little bit and talk about your career. So tell me a little bit about the path that, that you've gone through over these years that now where you are today. Yeah, sure. I appreciate the question. So I started out in higher ed in 1997, uh, <laughs> which is a long time ago. Uh, I was hired as campus pastor at uh, Christian University in Central California and was there for 11 years. Uh, during that time, got started teaching as kind of an adjunct overload and had good advice that if you want to keep, if this is going to be your career, you need to get a PhD. So I did along the way and then moved to university in Arkansas, where I was university chaplain, dean of spiritual formation, and associate professor of theology. And while I was there, uh, part of my research was on how Christian universities influenced the spiritual lives of students. And, and a lot of my research was focused on basically the HR side of the university, how we recruit faculty and staff, how we uh, do professional development, how we do evaluations. And I realized that if I wanted to make the type of difference I wanted to make in a university, I needed to be at a different level. And so I had a president who was very supportive of me and basically helped me with a, a professional development plan for two years to get me ready to be a president or chancellor. And then in 2019, I had the opportunity to come to Indiana Wesleyan to lead the, the residential campus of the university and spent oh. four years there doing that. And so every one of those phases has been just a fantastic way to serve and impact the lives of students and families. And uh, then now I'm doing it in just in a different way with business leaders. Yeah. What's been the biggest lessons you learned as an academic leader? Yeah. So uh, one academic leadership is a lot more about relational influence than it is about positional power. So uh, there people would always say, well, you're the boss. You can, do whatever you want. And I'd say, have you ever worked with faculty? <laughs> and so, uh, so I always worked really hard at building relationships uh, with basically everybody on campus. When I came to Indiana Wesleyan University, we had 17 academic divisions. I had a face-to-face -face meeting with every academic division within the first three months of being on campus. And just as a way to get to know them, to let them get to know me. And to say, okay, how, what's important here? Where are we going together and how do we get there? And, and so it was a lot more about um, 
kind of recruiting partners for a common mission than it was about um, positional power. Yeah. Um, another another thing that I learned, which I tried to exemplify uh, almost every week, was I would send out a weekly email to campus, and I would honor names, individuals by name and departments just for good things that had happened that week. And people want to be encouraged. They want to know that their contributions matter. They want to know that people are noticing. And so trying to do that regular uh, pattern of, of recognition. And then anytime we had community meetings, were, which were about every four to six weeks, we would spend part of the time uh, just honoring the work of different faculty and staff and divisions and trying to trying to do that recognition piece was really important. Well, what do you think are the most important qualities for someone to excel as a chancellor? You'd listed a few right there. Yeah. So I think um, a deep commitment to the people of the institution. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I found when I got to this level is it's real easy to sit in your office and deal with numbers and data and uh, metrics all the time. And that's a recipe for really bad leadership. And so I, I found it really important to be with people a lot, um, but also to do like what I talked about, recognition of people. Um, another thing that I learned as I moved from a teaching you know, teaching and leadership role at more of a director dean level is I had very little direct impact on an individual student, but I had the opportunity to empower a lot of other people for direct impact. And so I had to change what my definition of success was. Um, because when I was teaching, you know, at the end of a class, I could say, yep, good or bad. At the end of a semester, I could look at evaluations, good or bad. Um, and so there was a one-to-one -one correlation between effort and outcome. And in this leadership role, it was much more intangible and much more about the impact of others. And so I had to change my definitions of success. Yeah, losing, losing that uh, uh, contact with students that you initially have as a professor is just, it's so hard to give up. It really is. It really <laughs> is. <laughs> um. Who, who was um, the biggest influence in your academic career? Um, well, I'd go all the way back to when I was in college, I had a couple of professor, one professor and one uh, leader, actually a campus pastor, um, who were very influential in my life. Actually, uh, my campus pastor in college has, has been a mentor and friend of mine for 37 years now, and we still... Uh, communicate regularly. I had a couple of professors, an accounting professor named Michelle Johnson, uh, who was just very influential in my life. Do you have time for a quick story about Michelle? Sure, absolutely. I love stories like this. All right. So I was a cocky uh, junior and uh, she was handing back tests one day and I got a hundred percent on an accounting test, which was a big deal. And she handed me the test and I was pretty proud of myself. And she said, Rod, this wasn't a good test. And I said, why is that? And she said, because a test should measure what you don't know. And I know you don't know everything. 
and it that's was a great, great lesson. That's a, yeah. that's a good that's a good comment. I like that one. Um, yeah, it was very good. What do you think's been learned about online education since the pandemic, and and how do you see that platform evolving for both students and faculty? Yeah, that oh, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the things we've learned is there's a difference between online education and doing a class on Zoom. So doing a class on Zoom is not online education. It's just a video, a video recorded class of an in-person experience. And I think one of the things at our, our, our university, so we had two very distinct parts of the university and uh, uh, in-person residential campus with about 3,000 students and an online uh, portion of the university with about 10,000 students. And sometimes there's some competition between faculty of different modalities. I don't know if you've experienced that or yeah. not. <laughs> uh, but I think it was really good for our residential faculty to recognize how difficult it is to do online education well and uh, just the different pedagogical methods you've got to use both for online education and then if you're teaching adult students for adult online students. And so I think it develops some greater appreciation for faculty who teach in different modalities. Um, I also think uh, that COVID had an unexpected benefit for residential campuses because uh, the narrative had been pretty soon everything's gonna be online because it's easy and flexible. Um, but a lot of people realize there's something really significant about in-person education. And so I think it in some ways created different market opportunities for online education and residential education because there are students who want different things. All right. Now, it also created the desire for on-campus students to say, but it'd really be nice to be able to take a course or two online here or there, you know, to help me catch up or move faster. And that's not going away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, since you talked about older adults, or I'm going to call them non-traditional students, mm -hmm. even though I think today there's more and more older adults going back to college than there was 20 years ago. Um, mm -hmm. What can colleges and universities do to help those students transition better into the university systems? Yeah, I think uh, that colleges and universities the main thing is not to treat non-traditional students like traditional students. There's sometimes the under, or the, the perception that, well, we've got our orientation programs and what works for an 18-year-old works for a 38-year-old. And they 38-year-olds or 48-year-olds or however old uh, come with different life issues. They come with different needs. Uh, they have different transitions into the university academically, financially, um, vocationally. And so I think not trying to adapt uh, traditional orientation programs, traditional even course sequences to a non-traditional population, but design uh, those programs for adults who are coming back, who have different fears maybe about not being in a classroom for 10 or 20 years, um, different needs for support, different needs for flexibility and family issues. So um, I think the big lesson is you design it for the population, you don't adapt it from a different population. Mm. That's a good point. Well, since I have you on the show, I'm going to pick your brain a little bit and ask you about um, what can be done to help improve diversity, equity, and inclusion 
at colleges and universities? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is again, you know, could fill up several podcast episodes, if not podcasts, but, um, there's, you know, I think we've been working at this for a long time and, um, there's both encouraging data and discouraging data about the efforts. Um, obviously one of the, the key issues is representation at all levels of the university. Um, it's very hard for a university to uh, create a, cr- a truly welcoming campus if it has a very homogenous leadership structure. Um, and so I think uh, looking to intentionally diversify uh, the leadership of the campus is really important. Uh, I would talk to uh, parents of color a lot who would come to campus and look around and say, is there anyone like me or like my student who my uh, kids can look to for role model? And there are a lot of people who care at the campus, no matter um, what their ethnic background, but it matters to have people who look like you. And the same is true for faculty and staff. Um, We sometimes do a better job of recruiting faculty and staff of color to campus than we do of retaining them because there's not a critical mass and they don't see examples of themselves in leadership or pathways to leadership. And so it's a lot more than figuring out are your numbers of diverse students increasing? It's about creating an environment of belonging. Mm -hmm. Uh, One one of the metaphors I used on campus uh, came from my own family. So we've had two of our sons get married in the last uh, few years. And I talked about when our daughters-in-law came into the family, I'd say, okay, your family now, you don't have to ask, can you get something from the fridge? You know, Um, and So you have certain rights and privileges as part of our family, you know, and our meals started to look different based on our daughters-in-law's, you know, food preferences. Then I said, but you also have to help wash the dishes and, you know, clean the table. You're not a guest anymore, you know? So, you know, as people come to campus, we go, you're part of the family now, which means you get to influence the way things work here. Um, And that's both a privilege and a responsibility. I really like that. That's a that's a great line. Well, let me do one more follow up question on that then, and this time we'll we'll spin it toward mental health. So, a lot of colleges and universities are really focusing their attention on the mental health of both students and faculty. Yeah. So, how do you see that evolving and improving over the next couple of years? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think that's one of the more challenging issues for. Uh, academic and administrative leaders these days because you have some conflicting forces at work. Uh, You have declining enrollment, declining budgets, often reductions in force and increased expectations for faculty and staff. And that's not a good recipe for mental health. Um, One of the things I think is really important is as universities are trying to figure out what to do next, they also need to figure out what not to do next. And universities do a really good job of adding responsibilities and almost never reduce responsibilities. And so, you know, we said when we had to do a reduction in force, um, we can't keep doing the same amount of work with fewer people. And so, and we can't keep adding programs without taking away programs. And it is just excruciating for people to give up things that have been done before, even if it doesn't make sense. And it's 
hard to kill a committee. It's hard to kill a task force. It's hard to, it's really hard to, you know, shrink majors, get rid of majors, get rid of residence life programs. You know, it is so hard to give up something. Uh, but if we are going to care for people well, we cannot keep doing more with less. Yeah, that's boy, that's that is absolutely true. I know everybody struggles with that, but I I have never seen any faculty member who ever say, Yeah, we should get rid of this program, even if it only has never. six students in it. It makes no difference. They can remember the time when it was yeah, a exactly. hot ticket item and you know absolutely. Even and if it was, it was just buggy more whips. More marketing, right? <laughs> yeah. I know. I tried to do this, you know, around our hundredth centennial you know the centennial anniversary i had this great idea that i never really put together of looking at all the programs that the university used to have that we no longer have um and it makes sense looking back why we don't have those it never makes sense in the moment to say we don't need this program anymore yeah that's the one thing business sure has over higher ed they seem to be able to pivot pretty well on yeah. those things absolutely yeah. Well, here's my last question. Do okay. you have any uh, favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to other academic leaders? I do. Um, and I, I read voraciously. So I'm actually oh, going to look up on my Goodreads <laughs> books here because I've got them categorized. Um, but one of the things I've always tried to do is, um, is read outside of higher ed for, for influences within higher ed. So um, a good book I just read, probably one of the most influential books I read recently is called Atomic Habits by James Clear, talking about how small, uh, small changes, if you really want to make changes, you have to make really small habitual changes. Uh, it was just a fascinating book. Um, there, let's see, what is the other, uh, of course, almost anything by Patrick Lencioni, just about organizational uh, work. He's got one, the five dysfunctions of a team, mm. um, which is really good. Another one that I've used for years is called death by meeting, which is a great book. And it talks about, uh, one of the reasons why people hate meetings so much is that, uh, we don't structure them well, and we don't realize that there are different kinds of meetings and we try to do everything in the same kind of meeting. And that's why meetings are terrible. Um, so that one, uh, that one was really good. Um, another one I read recently, Deep Work, Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World, was really, really good. Um, and then another one, I actually listened to this one during uh, COVID, which was really helpful. I'm trying to see if I can find it here. Uh, Sorry, this is really bad podcast working right here. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> oh, it's called Forged in Crisis. And it's the story of five leaders who uh, basically grew to greatness through the crisis. So it's Ernest Shackleton, you know, exploring the Antarctic. It's Frederick Douglass, you know, in the 1800s as a person of color in a slave um, slave-driven country. Um, it's a scientist in uh, the mid-20th century who brought to uh, to light uh, the impact of pesticides on on our culture. And just it was so helpful for me to read during 
during COVID, especially as trying to lead a university through a very tough time. And maybe the last one is called Necessary Endings by Henry Cloud, uh, which talks about, in some ways, the hard things we were just talking about, how to end programs, sometimes end relationships. Um, and it was really, really good, um, just in the tough work that we have to do as leaders. Yeah, that's true. Oh, my goodness. Well, looks like our time's ended. This was a, this was a lot of fun for me, Rod. I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.